This interview was recorded on May 22nd, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jane Friedman. Based in Charlottesville, Jane is a very well-known expert in the publishing industry and popular speaker and consultant on business strategy for publishers and authors alike. In addition to having her work and expertise being featured everywhere from Publishers Weekly to the Washington Post, PBS, CBS, and NPR, she also has a great course on The Great Courses that I highly recommend called How to Publish Your Book. And recently in 2019, Jane was awarded Publishing Commentator of the Year by Digital Book World. You can follow her on Twitter at Jane Friedman and check out her website at janefriedman.com. And you can sign up for her really amazing publishing industry newsletter, The Hot Sheet, at hotsheetpub.com, which is just an incredible resource for both authors and for anybody working in the book publishing industry. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jane's work, recent developments in the publishing industry, and we'll dive into the impact of the coronavirus on everyone right now. So thank you very much, Jane, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you, Len. It's great to be back. Uh, Normally, I like to start these interviews with a deep dive into the guest's origin story, but as you just suggested about being back, uh, you've already done that. Uh, when I first interviewed you for the podcast way back uh, way back in October 2017, uh, so I was hoping that maybe uh, this time we could start the interview uh, with you talking a little bit about what you've been doing for the last couple of years um, up until 2020 hit, and then we'll kind of mm-hmm. start a new conversation when you've had a chance to talk about that. Yeah, so the last few years... In many ways, it's more of the same as when we last spoke. I'm still doing the hot sheet, the paid newsletter that's all about the publishing industry, news and perspective and analysis for an author audience. Although I'm doing that solo now. So I did have a partner on that, a journalist, Porter Anderson, and I took it over last year. So I'm now running that solo. And the other thing that happened is I had my book come out from the University of Chicago Press, The Business of Being a Writer. This was something I really wanted to do for the classroom. So specifically for writers who are getting MFA degrees or studying formally and really needed what I consider to be a wake-up call about the difficulty of making a living as a writer and what it means to do that because so often you're not earning primarily from book sales. You're earning from somewhere else, especially in your early career. Once you're established, you know, of course, it's more possible, but I don't think, especially when you're a creative writing student, I'm not sure how aware they are of, of the challenges. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'll definitely put a link to your book in the, in the uh, notes for the show and in the transcription. We do full transcriptions of all these interviews and, and do lots of links and stuff like that. So you mentioned an MFA. That's a Master's of Fine Arts uh, for, those, for those who aren't aware. Uh, but for those who are, um, uh, this is uh, a route that people take through university towards a career in, in writing. Um, it's often people that do do sort of uh, the reason it's fine arts is because it's creative writing. So it's people who are doing sort of short stories or novels and poems and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, literature basically, <laughs> right. uh, as, as opposed to other kinds of writing typically. Uh, and, um, what are the things that people who, uh, not to generalize too much, but who sort mm-hmm. of you know, people are often very young and sort of, you know, haven't necessarily had careers before when they do MFAs. What are the things that they actually really need to hear? Well, in the programs, they're really focused on craft and technique and studying literature. And their professors are often in a position where they don't have to think about the marketplace for their work. Their salaries come from the university. They have a full-time teaching job. And they may they have very varying levels of experience when it comes to selling your work or making a living just purely from writing. So the the issue that's come up, especially within like let's say the last ten to twenty years, is those teaching positions. I mean, there's so few of them, and the number of creative writing students. I mean, this is a degree that has flourished over the last like since 1980. The number of these degree programs have increased. Um, so you have this huge number of students graduating with these degrees, really focused on what has been the art and the craft of writing without the business side of what it means to earn a living from it. So in a, in liberal arts institutions, you know, they don't want to have the business or the marketplace kind of sully the, uh, the discussion, like you're supposed, you know, you're supposed to, uh, somehow have higher, higher intentions than uh, money. Uh, so it's just, I find there's this missing piece that I hope that the book provides, as well as all of the resources that I try to offer online that are free, 
that helps students see as well. And, and there are also lots of adults, um, uh, you know, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s go to these programs. It's not just, you know, conventional college-age students. So trying to help this entire community see basically how to build a business model, uh, the different ways that that happens, what it means to share your work with an audience online in, in a way that helps build a career and builds a readership. So these, I don't think these things are antithetical, to, to the art or to literature, but they're often treated that way in an MFA program. And I think that's changing a little bit because professors see that there's a problem with them training these writers to go and do something that, you know, they can't really pursue fully unless they have a day job. <laughs> they feel like, like you don't want to mislead them as to the challenge. So things are changing a little bit. Um, and I'm hoping the book helps provide a tool that's useful in, in pushing that change forward. It's, it's such a fascinating topic that one could talk about forever. Um, uh, you know, the idea that money and art are kind of antithetical is, is, is not even true now, if in a, in a sense, if you know what I mean, if you read about, you know, right. you know, about like people like Damien Hirst or, you know, even Picasso yes. and such. Um, and if you read, you know, if you know anything about Dickens, Mm. Uh, you know, uh, he, he, you know, he, he, he liked money, um, and, and had no problem sort of starting new magazines and, you know, expanding yes. the outline of his novels if they were being serially published and they became hits, uh, and things like, which is one of the reasons I always like to say to people, you know, why are those 19th century English novels so big? It's because they were being published chapter by chapter and they became hits. The short ones are the ones that, well, not always, but, you know, weren't that popular, um, so when, when do you have a sense of when did this sort of, I'm going to call it a, a loaded term, modern phenomenon <laughs> of, of money and art being seen as antithetical emerge in kind of Western culture? Some time ago, I was tasked with giving a keynote talk at the Muse in the Marketplace, which is a big writer's conference held in Boston by Grub Street, a nonprofit organization that serves writers. And the, the director basically asked, I want you to talk about how artists or writers make money and what the history of that has been like and where, where we're going. And so I actually looked a little bit at this question of where things kind of took a turn. And a lot of it has to do, at least as far as my research went, uh, with the rise of literacy and when books became a much more commercial product. So prior to that time, you know, reading was a more kind of, it was an activity pursued by people with leisure time and education. But as newspapers and magazines uh, started to take off with the rise of literacy, as did books, um, you started getting more forms of what we call light entertainment or what they called light entertainment then. And, and we still do like romance, mystery, ghost stories, these sorts of things. And so you then kind of had this bifurcation in the market of, uh, the more, you know, literature with a capital L, poetry, um, the classics, and then the things that were being written and published to entertain the masses, um, love stories and, and things. So that, you know, that happened in the 1800s, roughly. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been the same ever since. I mean, there's still, I think, a lot of tension between the people who pursue writing in that more literary MFA sense, like the Jonathan Franzens of the world, and the people who write and publish genre fiction, the commercial fiction, you know, the James Patterson or, or romance. Um, and you saw that tension manifested um, years ago when there was the uh, Oprah pick of the Jonathan Franzen novel, The Corrections, one of the biggest um, scandals in publishing um, because it caused Oprah to shut down her book club when Franzen suggested, you know, that he wasn't comfortable with his literary novel being chosen by this mainstream TV show, like it damaged his, his literary credibility. Um, I think he might have since apologized, but, you know, that that sort of tension has been with us a long time. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. There are so many kind of strange contradictions, um, you know, in, in the in the discourse and the way of thinking that people have. I mean, for example, I've never gone near a Jonathan Franzen 
piece because everything I hear about him, I've ever read about him, made it pretty clear to me that there's not a word, <laughs> there's not a word he can write that I'm interested in reading. Uh, and the idea, so there's this weird idea that like everybody wants the money, but everybody pretends they don't. And so it, it sort of gets offloaded on the work of getting the money gets offloaded onto the, the, the publishing company or mm-hmm. the publisher, um, that is supposed to, uh, play the role at once of doing all the dirty work and elevating the yeah. author's status by virtue of doing the dirty work, yes. which is just such an interesting, interesting feature of the, the way people typically think about it. Uh, but um, we live in a world, uh, fortunately, where things have changed in the last, uh, let's say, 10 years or so with respect to self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only that um, uh, it's become easier to actually make a living self-publishing, but that actually attitudes around it have changed as well. And this is, again, one of those things where, like, we could talk forever about it. If you actually understand the history of publishing, you know, Homer didn't have a publisher, you know, Nietzsche self-published his thesis, mm-hmm. you know, Walt Whitman self-published Leaves of Grass, you know, uh, there, you know, I mean, in a sense, Dickens self-published many of his works because he owned mm-hmm. the magazines they were published in and things like that. But, um, how do you see in your interactions with with authors nowadays? How do you see people? Do you see people still approaching self publishing sometimes as a little bit dirty? It, it depends on kind of the the culture that you grew up in, the the books or literary culture you grew up in, and also also I think to some extent age. So, for instance, a lot of the writers or authors I speak to who you know, are familiar with the term vanity presses or subsidy publishing and remember seeing those old ads in Writer's Digest in the 80s, you know, for, I can't remember the companies now, like Dorrance might have been one, um, where you pay thousands of dollars and then you have thousands of copies of your books sitting in your garage. Like, yeah, there's this stigma attached to it from those old, older versions of self-publishing, um, some of which have stuck around amazingly. Uh, and, but if you look at younger people and, and I, and I use younger with a broad brush, like there's some old people who have younger attitudes and are, you know, exposed to the many different ways that people publish now, but, you know, people who use Wattpad, for example, or if you look at the Instagram poets, which pushed poetry back into a popular selling category, uh, you know, these types of, uh, this participation in the literary community, even though it might not be considered formal self-publishing to me, it's, it's just like Dickens putting out his, you know, his magazines and his serializations. So yeah, I think largely the stigma has fallen away and what's become even more interesting to me is how self-publishing authors have, I think a healthier relationship to money uh, the art money tension, which can be productive than traditionally published authors. And may, it's probably because they're closer to the business. They see what succeeds. They have to make choices every day about, am I going to pursue this series or not? Am I going to do this next book? Does it make sense to um, continue with something that I believe in, but that clearly isn't earning me any money? So they have this control and a, you know, um, a sense of responsibility if they're using income from that self-publishing activity to provide for their family. Um, there's a really great podcast called Six Figure Author. Uh, by uh, It's hosted by three authors who write in multiple genres, but they're particularly strong in science fiction and fantasy. And, you know, and they're talking about these sorts of challenges all the time. And it's, I don't think they're any less dedicated to the quality of their work than a literary author, but they're also excited to talk about what's working in terms of building their readership and that's rare among traditionally published authors yeah and um unfortunately so because uh being you know being an author is uh running a business um uh as you write about in your book and as other people like um uh, we've had um orna ross on the podcast Mm -hmm. in the past for example who's very straightforward about that um uh, it's funny you mentioned the the scams sort of still still exist, which is it's it's a funny space to be in because you can just go out and make money on your own now, uh, and and the stigma around self publishing is gone, but they still exist. And just to share a brief story, um, so this this affected my life about a year ago. I got a call from my parents, and we talk like once a week on Sunday nights, right? 
And so to get a call from my parents in the middle of the afternoon is like literally like, oh no, did grandma die or something <laughs> like that, right? And I get a call from my parents, not to make light of that, and I get a call from my parents and they're like, someone contacted us from a publishing company. They want to publish a book by you. Oh, we just dear. thought it was very serious to let you know. And I explained to them, like, I found it like this, this num a number that like, I didn't even remember that they had from like 10 years ago for their landline. Uh, and I explained to them, like, there's no way a serious person contacted my parents <laughs> when they were trying to get in touch with me. And I, I thought I'd explained the whole thing to them. And I won't name the company. I figured out what it was in the end. But a week, a, a couple of days later, I got a call again from my dad saying, I know you told me not to tell you about this, but they called again. It's really serious. And just the idea of somebody's job is just to sit in a boiler room at a desk, like calling people, trying people's parents, elderly parents, trying to get them to influence their grown children yeah. to sign up and that, it, and that it works some percentage of the time. Oh, yeah. Really incredible. Yeah. It is heartbreaking to me, uh, especially within the last few months, these companies are now sending solicitations or making these calls um, telling people, you know, oh, we love your work and we can publish it for $1,200, which is the exact amount of a stimulus check in the United States. Oh, my God. And you, it's just like, this is not what anyone needs to be spending their money on right now. Unless, of course, they're, you know, they already have like they're already knowledgeable. They already know what they're doing. But funneling your money to one of these companies is not at the top of anyone's list right now or should be. Uh, yeah. Oh boy. That's so, that's so gross. I'm sorry to hear about that latest iteration, but it's been, it's been gross for a while. And so, yeah. So if anyone's wondering why to some extent there might be still a little bit of a lingering uh, yeah. suspicion around self-publishing, it is because there are kind of bad operators. Although of course um, there are bad operators operating at, at every level as well. Um, and uh yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of hard to keep a hold of the timeline, but there have been lots of controversies in the publishing industry. People listening to this podcast who aren't familiar with the book publishing industry might not know it's full of controversies. Uh, there were things about the Romance Writers of America. Um, there was something with the CEO of Macmillan, uh, who, uh, which is a big, a big publisher, who uh, tried out a new uh, library lending program. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, that that didn't work out and things like that. Um, uh, many other things like that, actually. Uh, but they've all uh, kind of gone away, um, I think, anyway, uh, because something else has happened, which is the novel coronavirus has hit. Um, yes. And so I wanted to uh, start, but we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll, let's start from the ground level and we'll end up at the higher level of how this has affected the publishing industry. I mean, it's a complicated industry, particularly the uh, physical side of things that has, you know, everything from paper production to distribution to returns and things like that. But so uh, you're a very independent person. You have your, your you have the hot sheet, you, you do lots of consulting and you do lots of speaking. And how has uh, COVID-19 uh, and lockdowns and things like that affect, affected you? I've been very fortunate in that my own business is pretty diversified. So I don't have one piece of income that probably exceeds more than 40% of my overall. And a lot of the work that I do that's um, highest volume that really is, serves as the foundation is editing and critique work and consulting work, which I've always done remotely or virtually via email or Zoom meetings. And that sort of business has been very consistent. I would say maybe it's even increased a little bit since people are now at home and they maybe have more time on their hands. They're more available to work on these sorts of things, even if they are distracted. Um, I actually reached out to a couple colleagues who offer services like um, editing companies that are like, uh, like communities of people who've formed a, a co-op to offer editing services. And I asked if their business was up or down, and at least two that I asked, they were up by, say, 10 to 15% versus last year. So, so much depends on kind of like what, what little piece of the industry are you working in, and does it, does it depend on you having to be out you know, speaking? Does it depend on in-person events in some way? Now, I do have some portion of my business that's very event-driven. I was supposed to go to 17 total conferences this year. 
I only got to two <laughs> before things hit and I've canceled the rest. Um, I mean, most of the events had to cancel anyway, or they've postponed or they've gone online. But for those that haven't made the decision yet, you know, I'm at this point, I'm not willing to commit to anything in person because of the tremendous uncertainty. So I have lost that that chunk of income, but it was never a big piece of my business. It was, you know, maybe 10 to 15% of the overall business. And I, I can fill that in by doing more online teaching, which has always been pretty fundamental uh, to what I do. And I've started, it's also just staying at home and being parked here is, has given me time to think more about what I want the business to look like in three years or five years to think about how I can do better business development on Hotsheet, the paid newsletter, which often gets short shrift because uh, I'm just so busy keeping the machinery working or I'm busy traveling. I don't have a lot of time to spend on, okay, how can I retain my subscribers or what more can I do to boost the return on that particular product that I offer? Uh, with respect to the Hotsheet, I would say it's uh, it's funny to hear you say you give it short shrift. Um, uh, there are the, the hot sheet newsletters are very comprehensive emails uh, and lengthy and very well researched. So I think, I, as you said, you're referring to the kind of like customer development kind of side of things, but the the, the content itself does not get short shrift. <laughs> uh, that's that's for sure. I, I always like it when they show up and set aside a block of time uh, to to read them. Um, uh, with respect to conferences, so I've, I've been sort of watching this from afar. I'm not a big conference goer or conference speaker myself, but it's been really interesting. I mean, you know, um, uh, O'Reilly, who do, who did uh, tech conferences, yeah. is a big part of their business. We're like very quick. And this is, I brought this up a couple of times on the podcast. That was one of those, we all have our little moments where it's like things get real. And when O'Reilly permanently closed their in-person conferences business, that was a moment for me because like they're, you know, they're a pretty sophisticated bunch. Um, and for them to do that was like, you know, a, you know, a sign of things to come perhaps. And, but there were other organizations um, that didn't respond so quickly uh, and uh, were even doing things like saying, we're not going to, we, no, we won't refund your conference fee that you paid. What we'll do is we'll just defer Mm-hmm. with some voucher or some, or something like that. And have you, I guess my question to you is, um, I guess generally what's, your, I mean, I think we know your opinion about, about what they should be doing based on your own decision about not attending, but why is it that some institutions have been slower rather than others in, in the book publishing industry in particular to, to cancel conferences rather than, rather than others? When I worked at a traditional publishing house, there was an events division that was quite profitable and it ran events for different enthusiast communities. So when I was at Writer's Digest, that was one of the communities uh, and there were writing conferences held about twice a year. There was also a really big design conference. Uh, I think it attracted more than 10,000 people or close to it. And there are other events like that, both very enthusiast driven and then a little more casual events as well. And I bring that up just to say, I've seen those profit and loss statements. (laughs) I've seen some of the contracts that events make with uh, convention centers and hotels. And I think they're brutal. I think they're some of the most brutal contracts I've ever seen as far as um, what you're committing to when you're running an event and the sort of risk, financial risk that's involved. So I do not envy any event organizer who is trying to make the call of what to do because whatever their, whatever the events contract is with their venue, it may be, they may still be on the hook for numerous costs. Um, But you know, how are, how are they going to pay those if they don't have people coming or if they have to process refunds or so it's, it's a huge mess. I I wouldn't even know where to begin uh, in tackling it. Uh, But I do think that, you know, there was, um, it was London Book Fair that took, it felt like eons <laughs> to make the call to cancel. Um, it was maybe only a week before it was set to start, um, which is a long time when you consider how many people were traveling internationally. I was supposed to go to London Book Fair and I was biting my nails wondering, um, should I be canceling my flights? Should I, you know, um, and then finally they made the call, which I was the right one, of course. 
So, but I have to imagine that money is underlining the difficulty of these decisions. Yeah, I can I can see what you're saying. I mean, you know, if you think about it, you know, if you uh, are going to be running a big conference and you make a you have a contract with a hotel to offer discounts to people, they're going to be setting aside rooms basically in the anticipation of people coming, and they're probably going to have some protection in the contract that you make with them against the expense of the, the risk basically of setting aside rooms. Catering companies are like, well, we can't cater two events at the same time. You know, so we've got to set aside time to do that and we're turning down other offers from other people. Um, and it's, yeah, the conference thing, it's like, it's, it's funny because we sort of, we sort of took them for granted as it were, those of us who didn't work on the conference side of things. Um, uh, but there are so many kind of ancillary services that are involved in putting yes. together a conference security guards, yeah. uh, catering, um, you know, things like that. And even, even if you think about things from the municipal level, it's like, you know, there's influxes of tourists mm -hmm. uh, that are coming in all the time. And to cancel something like that, it's not just, it's not just the sort of conference company is going to lose some money. There's yeah. tons of different businesses and tons of different people that are affected by this. And uh, I guess, you know, on that note, I wanted to ask you, like, do you see things like the, I mean, we, let's not name, name one, but do you mm -hmm. see these big book fairs coming back in 2021? They're going to be few, fewer. Uh, I think the biggest ones where, where I think they've just become so integral to how business gets done, I don't see them going away. So like if I had to name the three that, that I would, I would be shocked if they disappeared, it would be London book fair, Frank Frankfurt book fair and Bologna children's book fair. The rest, I, I, if they went away, I would be like, yeah, that probably, yeah, they needed to go away. <laughs> and, and, and for those listening who might not know, why, why, so why are some book fairs so integral to the business of book publishing and selling? Um, I, I, I think for the three I mentioned, the rights, the rights um, sales that happens that that happened there, it's the rights. I mean, the the rights sales. I'm not saying that they can't be done in person, but when you hear rights people talk about what happens at those fairs and how deals get done, and this applies, to be honest, I think more to publishers outside of the U.S. Like U.S. is so insular in how it publishes and it doesn't have a lot of translated literature. But in Europe and for a lot of the rest of the world, you know, they're avidly looking at what other publishers in other countries are doing and they're you know, looking at translations and licensing and co-editions. And that's, it's just harder to conduct business um, virtually in that way and to get as much done. I mean, certainly they're doing that now, but I don't think that's the preference. I don't think it will be the preference in the future. Oh, so that's interesting. So say uh, when we're talking about rights, so basically someone, um, uh, a publisher has bought some content uh, mm -hmm. from, from an author and then um, they uh, have, they want to sell the rights to publish it in different regions of the mm -hmm. world or in different yeah. languages and I'm just getting the image in my head of like, if you're at a conference and you've got this property to sell, you can sort of go in one room with some people at like three o'clock and like one room with some other people at three fifteen, and they both yes. know what's happening. Yes. And so you sort of get this febrile environment. of Yeah, okay. that's, ex that's exactly it. And uh, like, for instance, in the UK, I think about 60% of their sales generally out of the publishing industry happen outside of the UK. So it's just incredible how much they depend. It's it's interdependent system, and so when you have a UK publisher or a France publisher going to these fairs, they're you know they might be basically traveling all of Europe on a single uh, exhibit floor. Um, so it's very efficient, and it it helps build relationships. Oh, that's really that's really fascinating. Um, there there's so many things to talk about in the industry. Um, uh, one of one of the just to, to sort of set the stage a little bit, the one of the things that's happening in all kinds of industries, like the oil industry uh, um, uh, is one in particular that for some reason I've become fascinated with uh, recently. I did, I did some work in that in my old investment banking days, but is the, the way the coronavirus or the pandemic has been accelerating trends that were already there and also exposing weaknesses that maybe people were having a hard time facing. Can you, would, would you talk a little bit about maybe one or two of the weaknesses in the book publishing industry that you think have been um, exposed uh, to, to, to people who weren't aware of them already uh, by, mm -hmm. by current events? 
Independent bookstores have generally ignored online commerce. So, you know, they see online commerce as that that's Amazon. We're, we're doing battle against Amazon. We're not trying to replicate the experience of Amazon. We're very community driven. We want people to come into our stores. You know, we're about selling print. Obviously that gets really complicated when uh, you're in a pandemic. And so they have had to pivot so quickly and look at solutions for still providing both print as well as digital to, to their loyal customers. I mean, on the flip side, the good news is that a lot of people are recognizing the value and the importance of shopping at the businesses in their region or in their community that they want to see exist after this is uh, somewhat returned to normal, whatever that might be and whatever normal might look like. And, you know, but it's so much more work for these independent stores if they didn't already have the processes in place to try and like, okay, we got to, how do we facilitate online orders? What technology or platform are we going to use? How, how will we handle delivery? Um, and so a lot of them are finding, and at this particular moment, you know, they're doing three or five times the work for half the profit. Um, and maybe if they had already had systems in place, they would have already optimized and figured out what's going to work for them and their community. Fortunately, I think because of the outpouring of support, you know, among readers and publishers and, and donations, um, <laughs> I think that many will be able to survive if they weren't doomed prior to the pandemic hitting. You know, in, independent book selling is already a, a razor thin margin business. And so some were probably weak uh, to begin with, and this is going to make it impossible to recover. But for those that have a really strong foundation, I'm hoping that this pushes them to do what they probably should have done all along, which is have a way for people to order online and order digitally. Um, and then just quickly, I'll mention there's a new retail uh, storefront called Bookshop, which uh, was launched by the people who do, uh, they do LitHub, they do Catapult. It's kind of like a New York literary publishing central in my mind, but very, very innovative, very um, forward thinking in terms of, of technology, and which is unusual in the literary community, I find. So a bookshop launched in January before anyone knew what was coming. And it's supposed to be the way that people can support independent bookstores without shopping at Amazon, but with the same seamless kind of experience that Amazon provides. So, you know, there has been a huge um, acceptance so far of bookshop. And I think they achieved the milestone they hope to achieve in three years in just three months. So that that's the good news story coming out of it for the for the independent bookstores. Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty incredible. Yeah, just to talk about that a little bit, you mentioned donations. I think that might might you might be talking a little bit about James Patterson there, for example, yes. who's a big a big time big time uh, author who uh, donates money to profit taking businesses, which is an interesting thing to do. Um, but you know, the independent bookstore occupies a particular position in a lot of people's lives where that's not 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 a strange thing to to think about um but bookshop uh their goal i, I think i gather was like if we can just get one percent of amazon's book sales we can keep right. thrive we can sustain a thriving independent bookstore yes. uh community across the country i'm speaking specifically the united states uh, and they've been succeeding yeah they have and um more power to them i hope i hope that people continue to use them after this is over yeah, it's a it's um it's a really great success story. It was really interesting to see, and as you say, you know, it, it's you know they they launched before sort of things happened, but the things that have happened have proven the demand for for what they were going get, getting at, and that's I guess kind of one of, one of the reasons I wanted to sort of frame things as like underlying trends that have just been accelerated, mm -hmm. um, in particular in the book publishing industry. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the supply chain. Mm -hmm. Uh, for paper. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're all familiar with Thunder Mifflin and how, how paper is really boring. <laughs> uh, but if, if you're in the book publishing industry and you make your money from paper, uh, paper is really important. Paper has to come from trees. It has to be made. It has to be shipped around. It has, there have to be orders in advance and things like that. And prior to uh, the pandemic, there was already consolidation going on, or I, I might be getting that quite wrong, uh, failure happening. In, in the supply chain uh, for paper. 
in the United States. And I was wondering if hopefully I'm right about some of that and if you could talk a little bit about what's been going on there. The paper supply is tight, although it's an area that I'm not as familiar with. Um, I know even even going back a few years, because uh, there's so many changes that are happening outside of publishing that influence this. But you know, think about how Amazon's need for packaging material uh, might influence what sort of papers or cardboards or paper-like products get manufactured. So, like if you go to a paper manufacturing conference today or whenever one would happen, uh, you know, they're, they're often looking at diversifying their own businesses away from printing paper and into other types of paper products that can keep them alive. So I'm not, I'm the wrong person to talk to about where this is at currently. The, the concern for publishers at the moment, I know also lies not just in paper, but in the printer's because the two, <laughs> this is just insane, like the two main printers in the U.S., one is filing for bankruptcy and the other one doesn't look like it It might be far away from it. Uh, in fact, the so this is LSC uh, is the largest printer in the U.S., which has filed for bankruptcy. And then you've got Quad, which is second largest, and they just closed all of their book printing manufacturing facilities. And they're trying to sell them, but then COVID hit. And I don't know who's going to buy that right now. Uh, makes me wonder why a publisher just doesn't buy it. You know, um, maybe protect your supply chain by owning the printers as well. Although that might, I don't know how crazy that is. I don't work in that sector. But in any event, um, printing supply is very tight. And I know publishers have had to kind of scramble a bit because with COVID also, they've had to change some release dates. So some books really rely on that retail placement, like merchandising in store in order to sell. And so they, for those books where the publishers feel that's critical, they're moving the release date to the fall. But of course, that throws the printing schedules into disarray. There's only so many books you can print at a time. And it's just, um, it's, it's tough. I don't, I don't know how that gets solved. Um, I would love to hear what conversations are happening. But I... One thing I do know is that print-on-demand is one solution, and that has seen, uh, at least according to some publishing industry consultants, like Mike Mike Shatskin is one who's written about this on his blog, apparently print-on-demand uh, consumption has skyrocketed at Ingram, which is the biggest provider in the U.S. of print-on-demand services, and their turnaround times have gotten longer and longer and longer through the spring because I think, you know, as the supply chain is affected, more publishers are pushing things to print on demand. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating thing. The um, uh, print on demand for those for those who don't know. So typically in the past, um, uh, if you uh, were a publisher and you had the rights to a book and you, you, you owned a book, you would print a bunch of copies of it. Uh, and you would hire people to do that and they would do, or you would have it in house for example, perhaps, uh, but, um, you would print a bunch of copies and then you would have a conference and you would try and sell them to, to, to bookstore owners or, or distributors. Um, and then they would, um, take those copies and then, uh, they would return the ones that were returned that, that weren't sold, um, or P or that, that people actually bought and returned and things like that. It was a very complicated process. Uh, but print on demand is the idea that um, uh, a book, a physical book doesn't exist until someone orders it. And when they order it, then it's printed with a machine that's dedicated to this, to this purpose. And Ingram that the company in particular has uh, my understanding has like, you know, really um, advanced the mm -hmm. popularity of that process. And Mike Shatskin uh, who's a publishing industry expert like Jane, um, uh, who we've actually had on the podcast as well, talks a lot about how one of the things that print on demand has done is it has made uh, books that previously would have been just would have been disappeared from the supply chain reappear. And so things can happen. Like, for example, uh, suddenly a topic can become popular and people can, you know, click buttons on their computers and order books that are suddenly brought into existence. Uh, but print on demand really changes the logistics of, of how books are produced and shipped and, and, and things like that. And it's, it's been a real revolution, but um, for companies that haven't uh, adopted it, uh, things like the timing of publication are really 
are really crucial, uh, not just because of, you know, the sort of launch when something becomes popular, you know, all of a sudden it's in the news that this new book is out, but timing of publication matters when you've got to marshal the resource, the physical resources to be available yeah. at the time. And so one thing that's, that this all a long way around of saying, everybody's probably heard about movies that have been, def- you know, uh, whose release has been deferred. The same thing's been happening in the book world. What do you think will happen if people who've deferred the launch of a book until the fall uh, discover that in the fall there's a resurgence of the yeah. of COVID nineteen? Yeah, I think the I'm not going to say that the moving of the publication dates is unwise. I mean, like at the time, yeah, that it made sense. But the further we get into this, the more I'm concerned that it's just you know from the frying pan into the fire sort of phenomenon. I don't. I don't want to say that those authors are going to lose, um, kind of lose their chance at launching. But if I were an author of a book coming out in August or September, or God forbid, October, or November, when the election is going on, um, I would I would be looking at alternatives for marketing and promotion, like looking at any innovative way possible to reach people online and shoring up my online presence. Yeah, it's uh, it, there's there's so much uncertainty out there, but people, you know, have their they have their ambitions, and you know, the the book they just finished, or that the, you know, uh, that they you know had their dream come true, a publisher picked up and was ready to launch, and now people just really don't know um, uh, what to do, and it's it's really been affecting people in a lot of different ways, and um, uh, so has there been a, just to draw an analogy, you know, uh, some movie, uh, some film companies have been releasing movies sort of just straight, what was it like a Trolls movie or something that was released mm-hmm. straight to straight to mm-hmm. streaming rather than going to cinemas? Has there been something analogous to that happening in the book publishing industry where say a book is released in just like ebook format, uh, like that was supposed to be a big, you know, a sort of big production number uh, and is just suddenly out in ebook format and but not in print format? I haven't seen that except for titles that are much more of the moment. So like, I think there's a cookbook that one of the big five publishers is doing that's maybe pulling recipes from top chefs about what they cook at home. And it's being done as a charity publication. So maybe they're charging $5 for the ebook and it all goes to supporting restaurants in New York, that sort of project or a COVID children's picture book. I'm seeing those things come out digital only, but anything that was acquired, let's say, even just six months ago or 12 months ago, you know, all of those profit and loss statements were done with the assumption of a print, a print presence, a print launch. So it would be really hard to backpedal on that now. You mentioned the big five, uh, for those who aren't in the, in the book publishing world, there's big five uh, book publishing companies. Um, I always forget all the names and when I'm, I sort of like, you know, uh, under pressure to name them, but, um, you can, you can Google it and I can put a link in the transcription, but, but, um, one of the very big, uh, prominent book publishing companies in the United States is Simon and Schuster, mm-hmm. um, and their corporate owners have recently, rather dismissively, put it up for sale. Yeah, I was wondering yeah. if you could talk a little bit about that because for people who are in in the the book world and the world of words and writing, you know, Simon and Schuster is a big deal. It's really important. It's it's published important books. It's brought. Pro- like, you know, people to prominence who've influenced our, our culture. And then uh, it, it can be a bit jarring to suddenly be reminded that it's a business and it's owned by somebody else who's like looking at a profit and loss statement and going, uh, wow, like we're in the paper industry. <laughs> we're in the paper business and it's really variable and hit driven and there's no way of predicting it. Like, like let's get rid of this yes. cr- crummy business. Uh, <laughs> uh, is that something that other corporate overlords are thinking about other big famous companies? Fortunately, I don't think so. Um, so Viacom CBS, which is the corporate parent of Simon and Schuster, I think they, I mean, that was a recent merger. And, you know, I think in the release where they said that Simon and Schuster was up for sale, they mentioned, well, it doesn't fit with our video focused mission or whatever it is that they're planning to do that's video driven. And if that's the reason, which I, I take them at face value, like, yeah, it kind of does make sense um, to discard this, this thing that doesn't really fit. I mean, in the bigger business, Simon and Schuster is, 
a pretty tiny piece, which is true of a lot of book publishers owned by these conglomerations of um, media outlets. What may, you know, it's sad to me because Simon & Schuster is the last U.S. owned big five publisher. Um, So the others, we've got Macmillan, which is German held. And I believe that company holds mostly other book related or book friendly properties. You've got Bertelsmann, uh, that owns Penguin Random House, another German-based company, which has a lot of different media properties. Um, but it, it seems very unlikely they would let go of Penguin Random House because they just bought it. Um, or they just bought full ownership of it because there was another company involved in it. I won't go down that rabbit hole. Uh, and then you've got Hachette, which is owned by a big company in France, which is very much in book publishing and then finally, HarperCollins, which is owned by News Corp, the Australian Fox-related uh, uh, company. And HarperCollins is kind of an odd duck there to me. I, I mean, I, what do I know, a Virginia-based consultant? But to me, it seems like a very odd little fit with um, the rest of what's going on there. And it's to me, it's the more the equivalent of what I see with Simon & Schuster and ViacomCBS when I'm just looking at the holdings of the, of the larger company. But all of that to say, um, it doesn't surprise me. Um, what's hard to gauge is who would want this, even though it has wonderful authors and a backlist. It's a profitable company. Um, who, who wants that intellectual property? And so the most likely acquirer is probably one of the other big publishers, Um I, I forget now. I, there was a consultant who shared with me who he thought was the most likely big five to pick it up. I can't recall who that is now. Maybe Harper Collins, actually, um, because apparently News Corps likes to acquire things like that. So we'll see. And I, I guess I shouldn't talk about Simon and Schuster without talking about the unfortunate passing of the CEO. Uh, yes. He died of a, unexpectedly of a heart attack uh, just very recently. Yes, Carolyn Reedy just passed and. It was such a blow because she, she's been in the industry forever, uh, so well respected, frank, straight talking. Like she would give answers that were not CEO answers, if you know what I mean. And just clearly a very like intelligent, warm woman who cared about the business that she was in. Uh, that's not to say anything negative about the other CEOs, but she just really stood out um, for for her personality. Yeah, I never had the the. Uh, pleasure of meeting her, but I did see her um, uh, sit on a panel at um, oh, what's the big New York book conference called? Um, book Expo. Book Expo uh, back in like mm-hmm. 2013 or something mm-hmm. like that. And she just had this one of those people who had had, had a presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were there. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and that, yeah, it was it, I still remember. it. Um, and so so speaking of the big players, uh, we've talked about the supply chain. We've talked about for books. We've talked about uh, conferences. Uh, we've talked about the profitability to some extent and uh, desirability of big conglomerates owning publishing companies, but there's also bookstore chains um, to talk about as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the one that uh, to, to American sort of uh, listeners who are interested in the book industry, Barnes and Noble is the, is the big one. Do you have any thoughts? About, I mean, I, I, this actually comes up every time I interview someone from the big <laughs> publishing industry. Like what's the, what's your Barnes and Noble opinion? You're the first person I've talked to since about this, I believe, uh, I, um, since the, the pandemic. Uh, but Barnes & Noble is very much a physical business with physical yes. locations. Do you have any thoughts on, on their future? What a mess. I mean, I don't, it, it, it's been a mess for so long. Uh, so to give listeners some context here, I mean, the, the chain has been kind of hobbling around for several years now, if not longer than several years and I don't know what to blame. I mean, I think part of it is just it was going to happen no matter what. But I, I think mismanagement probably factored into it. They went through like four or five CEOs in a very short amount of time. And just last year, it was finally, it, it, it was a public company. It was sold to a private equity group that already owns a UK chain, uh, Waterstones. And that chain is led by James Daunt, who has now been put in charge of Barnes & Noble. 
And so because James Daunt comes from the book community, like he started Daunt Bookstore and he's he's seen as someone who can turn around failing book businesses, there's been this kind of hope now, you know, he could be the savior of the Barnes and Noble chain. And maybe, maybe, I don't know, but the, what's happening now certainly makes that a lot, lot harder. Um, and whether it can survive, I just... I I don't know. I guess it depends on how long this drags out. But it has given, I guess, if you want to look on the bright side, I mean, the intention, his intention all along has been to really revamp those stores, totally remodel because he thinks like they're just dull and um, they haven't kept up with the times, which is true. So with the store closings, you know, that's actually given them a chance to like tear them up from top to bottom and do what they wanted to do on a faster uh, timetable. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you can only imagine the challenge. Yeah, so James, you know, uh, famously in the book publishing industry sort of turned around the fortunes of Waterstones in the the book chain in the UK, partly by, uh, as I understand it, giving more um, autonomy Mm. to individual bookstores. And that that has the that has a number of impacts. One of which is making the people who work there feel better about the work that they're doing because yes. they have some choice about what what to do. Um, and then that that has a sort of that has an impact on the relationship that they have with their customers because their customers can be giving them some feedback and then they can actually make decisions. And then people love like getting the getting the seeing their decisions sort of reflected in the store that they're in. And you have some an amazing cat right there, by the way. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, uh, I love cats. We like cats on the podcast. Um, uh, and uh, anyway, so yeah, James Daunt was brought over to uh, the U.S. to try and turn around the fortunes of Barnes & Noble. It's, it's, it's funny. It seems from an age ago, but, you know, I remember reading a story about how all the, like, the, the tons of work he did sort of Steve Jobs style into the, the, mm. the angle at which books would be presented on bookshelves, yeah. which, um, which in this moment kind of seems trivial, but, like, you know, actually giving Barnes & Noble a chance to refurbish its stores uh, with, you know, without having to drive customers away because there are no customers there at all, actually is a, is a really interesting kind of opportunity yeah. to see, see what they can do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think everyone would like to see them survive. Like no one has this <laughs> black spot so big in their heart that they don't want them to pull out of this because it helps all all authors, all publishers, if, if that chain can stick around. So we'll see. Um, one thing we haven't talked about directly uh, yet uh, is the impact that um, the pandemic has had on authors pitching books, mm. um, which is something you're, you're, you know, a great course on the great courses about how to publish a book is a lot of it is about, is about that side of things. So there you are, You've got maybe maybe not even a, a, a finished book, but you've got an idea for a book. What if you want to, You've got to approach an agent. You've got to convince the agent to take you on because they're getting incoming kind of uh, requests from all kinds of people to take them on. And when they take you on, they do a lot of work for you. You've got to have a business plan that you present to people about what you're going to do. Uh, how has all of this been affecting that? Has it been made it because a lot of that was very interpersonal. You know, there'd be a lot of email and stuff, but mm-hmm. there might also be in-person meetings and, and things yeah. like that. How has that been affecting yeah. uh, you know people who are trying to pitch books, for example? I think the immediate effect for writers is that they can't do any conference pitching or in-person pitching, uh, which a lot of people rely on to make progress and to feel like they're getting meaningful feedback on why their project isn't working out. So some conferences are trying to turn that into virtual pitch sessions, and we'll see how well that plays out. Um, you know, the truth is most books do get acquired based on pitches via email. And so I don't know that that has changed so much, but certainly agents and publishers, what they're looking for is going to be modified. I think anecdotally speaking, there's much more interest in escapist sort of fiction. No one wants the really kind of depressing psychological thriller that would bring someone down. Um, no one wants pandemic or dystopian sort of fiction at the moment. So if you're writing this kind of happy go lucky, um, more like escape from the world type of novel, you'll likely have better luck if you're submitting, let's say over the next six months, maybe longer 
for nonfiction, you know, there's, it's just going to depend, I think, on the category. There are many nonfiction categories that are up in high demand, like anything to do with cooking, DIY, crafts, hobbies, gardening, money. Uh, these things are faring really well, as is many types of children's nonfiction, sense of, you know, homeschooling, kids at Kids need distraction. Uh, many people are looking to books to help provide them with that distraction. Coloring books are back. Um, activity books and puzzles, as I think everyone knows, everyone's now doing puzzles. Um, so, yeah, I don't. I, I think initially there was some anxiety around whether or not agents and editors would really be able to acquire in exactly the way they had been. But as far as anyone can tell, pub meetings are still being held albeit virtually. I think the one difficulty I've seen is that it might be a little harder for agents to do the lunch meetings with editors to gather information about what they're looking for. And I've seen calls on Twitter from agents specifically saying, hey, you know, if you're an assistant assistant editor, an associate editor, if you're new in your position, if your list needs are changing, you know, we can't take you to lunch. Um, maybe you can tweet about it or blog about it or arrange a Skype, you know, so there's kind of these promptings from agents to editors to be, for them to be more forthcoming. Uh, yeah, it's really curious, uh, just a, you know, sort of brief digression, but you know, that you mentioned the, the way trends that are, the things that are happening in the world affect the books that people are buying. Um, this reminds me of one of my kind of, uh, not, I guess, pet peeve is that Camus the Plague is not about a plague. Like, yes. it's not actually about a plague, you know, Look it up. <laughs> Please read the book for whatever reason, but that the plague is not about a plague. Um, but it, but it is it is a really fascinating thing about the publishing industry. Watch the bestsellers to see you know you can see what people are thinking about and what's what's uh, what they're concerned yeah. about and what they're do and you know with respect to coloring books and things like that what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one um, dimension of the book publishing industry that we haven't touched on yet is education, which is yet another, there's just so many things, uh, but you know, a lot of education has moved online now. Yeah. Uh, have you seen signals coming from the education side of things in the book publishing industry with respect to this change? I think that's probably going to be the area of publishing that is most dramatically affected. Um, educational publishing, whether that's K through 12 or university, was already under so much stress. Uh, So the biggest one, biggest of those publishers, Pearson, has been declining in profits for years now. And, you know, and they, they sold their stake in Penguin Random House in order to like gin up some money (laughs) to to keep the whole thing going. Or that's my reading of it anyway. Uh, Oh, Um, that's interesting. And it's because textbook sales are not what they used to be. There's changing habits of students and and these purchasing. Uh, there, there are more rentals. So like the whole ecosystem is shifting. And these companies like are trying to do the right thing and pivot or transform and offer what I would consider more services. So like, you know, um, online course modules or things that are built on the text that help professors teach the whole thing, not just from a book, but you've got the quizzes and the tutorials and the, and videos and all these other things. Um, but still, I mean, the writing's kind of on the wall, I think about where this is all headed. And so now with COVID, you know, that's depressing sales even further. And I'm, it's, it's probably, that's probably going to be the ugliest area when, when you look at whose sales or profits have declined the most. I guess I'm a bit I'm a bit curious about that. So, because um, I'm uh, you know from someone who sort of wasn't aware of it, and they thought you know oh everybody's got way more time on their hands. Aren't people going to be studying more? Aren't people going to be enrolling in courses more? And if actually maybe I can do it without having to move to another city, and I can just do it online mm-hmm. now from my home, one might think that education would actually be in mm-hmm. a, a place that would be expanding in terms of demand. Well, certainly, you know, I could be, there could be something I'm not seeing or reading, but a lot of the increase in sales that I've seen are happening with more mainstream consumer oriented publications from, you know, what we call trade publishers. So the stuff that gets stocked in a bookstore um, where a parent might buy it um, versus things that are textbooks, things that a, um, like a Barnes and Noble university or a university bookshop would carry, those sorts of sales 
are way off. And and part of it, you know, some people blame piracy, like students don't want to pay 80 or 100 or 200 dollars for that textbook. And so they're pirating it or they're borrowing. Um, They're trying to go without. Uh, And professors, too, are changing their habits and how they're assigning texts because they realize the economic the economic repercussions of assigning, you know, five or six books that all are $200 a piece, and then their students can't afford to purchase them. Yeah, that's something that's something that I, uh, I can get quite worked up about um, the, the pricing, the pricing of, of particularly educational books, where there was an article that had me shouting at the computer uh, in the New York Times not too long ago, where someone was saying, oh, you know, students are depriving the professor of, of, of income by pirating his book. And I know, or, and he meant it, I think maybe even himself, because, you know, mm-hmm. he assigns the book and they're, you know, they've got different page numbers or whatever, because they've got different versions. And it's like, if people aren't buying your $200 book, <laughs> it might be because you shouldn't be charging $200 for it. Um, and uh, the only reason you could get away with it at all uh, was because they had no choice. Right. Uh, and that's a, that's a crummy situation for everybody but you. Right. Um, and uh, anyway, that that's just my sort of pet pet peeve again of, you know, like things that underlying trends or weaknesses that are actually being exposed that like, you know, people who are getting away with charging too much for things uh, might be realizing, including rent, uh, mm-hmm. might be realizing that, you know, you can, you can kick everybody out, but if there's nobody knocking on the door to come back in, uh, you've made yeah. a big mistake. Yeah. Um, Specifically with respect, actually, that leads me to, uh, I guess, maybe my last publishing industry question for you before we before we end the interview. Um, so ebook pricing has always been something really interesting um, in itself, but also when you're watching book, you know, the major book publishers, the big five and things like that. I'm sure many people listening who have had the experience of going online and um, uh, noticing that the ebook version of a book is the same price or even more expensive than the print version of the book. Um, has the pandemic had any impact noticeably so far on, on the big fives pricing? I was, yeah, I was just having a conversation with a professional marketer about this, someone who helped, who is a, she's an author herself. And she also helps authors market and promote their books, particularly through digital channels and running Amazon ad campaigns. So in her work with clients, especially those working with the bigger publishers, she's noticed that some big publishers are in fact dropping their ebook prices, but they're not marketing that fact. <laughs> so that's, I mean, hmm. which I guess good that they're responding in some way, but if, if what she says is true and they're not even, and she said, they're not even telling the authors that they're dropping the price. The authors are finding out by accident. Um, well, that really begs the question of why do it if you're not going to then market it? You're just kind of wait, waiting or hoping that people stumble on this opportunity. Um, that's really just anecdotal. Um, I haven't seen myself any concerted effort from publishers to modify their pricing, um, either for front list or backlist. I think it's still an issue, especially for new authors for their ebook pricing to be equivalent or up near the, you know, the price of what a, an established author would be charging for their ebook. Um, it's just, it, I think it penalizes them for their entire career when they don't, when the pricing isn't a little bit more friendly to people who need to be taking a chance on a new voice. So um, yeah, I don't know that it has changed. And even before the pandemic broke out, there were just kind of some negative indicators or not encouraging indicators that publishers were like doubling down on on their position here. Uh, you mentioned earlier the library issue with Macmillan where they were uh, restricting uh, frontless titles from being purchased by libraries. Uh, they were increasing the prices of those books. And then also we've seen Penguin Random House pulling back their audiobook and ebook, I think I think it's both audiobook and ebook titles from subscription services like Scribd and Storytel. It may just be audiobook. I w- I'll have to double check. Um, because they just feel like they're not getting the full, you know, the full value of that sale through a subscription service, which I can understand there, there's, there are challenges there. But in any event, um, 
raising the prices on library ebooks to me is not the direction we want to go in. And fortunately, when the pandemic hit, um, publishers did start to offer price breaks specifically to libraries. I don't know if those are still in effect, and they're definitely temporary. Uh, but that that part, uh, I was happy to see. Uh, well, uh, to close out the uh, publishing part of the interview on a positive note, let's 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 leave it there. Uh, hopefully, good things are happening on the good things are happening on the library side of things. Um, so, the last question I wanted to ask you about. So, I neglected to uh, draw people's attention to your newsletter, Electric Speed. Um, at the beginning of this interview, but we'll do it at the end. Um, and uh, in the, and maybe it was the second last one you sent out, you talked about cooking and you mentioned cookbooks have become more popular, uh, uh, you know, recently. Uh, I, that's actually been true in my life. Um, uh, and uh, we had a little bit of exchange about, about sort of cooking uh, after you sent that email out. And I just wanted to ask you, so what, what's your, what are one or two of the major cooking discoveries you've made in the last couple of months? Yes, I think that one of the biggest was uh, learning to make proper creamy scrambled eggs from Gordon Ramsay. And this wasn't from a cookbook. It was from his masterclass. It's just an ingenious method and it's easier um, than probably however you're making scrambled eggs right now. And and the results will be a hundred times better. And then the other thing I discovered was a focaccia recipe from the New York Times uh, and I didn't realize that baking bread could be this easy. I've avoided it because I just consider it too time intensive. It requires too much care. But with this focaccia recipe, you don't have to knead it. You just bring the dough together, refrigerate it for a day, and then you dump it out into a pan. And and then after an hour, you put it in the oven. Like anyone, I think anyone can probably manage that. And the results were fantastic. Well, thanks very much for sharing that. I'll try and find links for for both uh, Gordon Ramsay's uh, scrambled eggs recipe and for the focaccia recipe uh, in the transcription of this interview. Jane, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast once again uh, and for being so forthcoming and for being uh, so game to to take my barrage of of, of sort of very high-level <laughs> questions uh, about so many different aspects of the publishing industry and handling them all, all, all so well. Thank you so much, Lon. It's a pleasure. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.